0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited to share this interview with you. I'm your host, Kelvin Ng from Yale University. With me is the co-host, Salmi Shri Ghosh from Princeton University. For God or Empire, Sayyid Fadl and the Indian Ocean World by Professor Wilson chacko Jacob, published by Stanford University Press in 2019, is a theoretically informed work of Indian Ocean history that raises a series of provocative questions about sovereignty and religion in the Indian Ocean. Sayyid Fadl, a descendant of the Prophet Muhammad, led a unique life one that spent much of the 19th century and connected India, Arabia, and the Ottoman Empire. The Fogodo Empire tells his story, part biography, and part global history, as his life and legacy afford a singular view on historical shifts of power and sovereignty, religion, and politics. Wilson Jacob recasts the genealogy of modern sovereignty through the encounter between Islam and empire states in the Indian Ocean world. Fadl's travels in worlds seen and unseen made for a life that was both unsettled and unsettling. And through his life, at least two forms of sovereignty, God and empire, become apparent in intersecting global contexts of religion and modern state formation. While these changes are typically explained in terms of secularization of the state and the birth of rational modern man, the life and afterlives of Sayyid Fadl which takes us from 18th and 19th century Indian Ocean worlds to 21st century cyberspace, offer a more open-ended global history of sovereignty and a more capacious conception of life. Over the course of our conversation, we will talk not just about Professor Wilson Jacobs' approach to teaching history, but also how he came to this project, what were some of the structural decisions he made when putting together the narrative which attempted to write the biography of Sayyid Fadl. I will also ask what can South Asian history and Middle East history gain from Indian Ocean World Studies. To learn about these issues and more, join us and stay tuned. I hope you enjoy the book and I hope you enjoy this conversation as well. Today, I'm here to talk to Professor Wilson Jacob, the author of the captivating book For God or Empire, Saeed Fadl and the Indian Ocean World. By discussing this book, We will dive deep to learn about overlapping currents in and off the Indian Ocean between religious worlds and modern state formation. Wilson Jacob is Associate Professor of History at Concordia University in Montreal. His early training at Georgetown University and his doctoral work at NYU were in Arab and Middle Eastern studies, with a specialization in the cultural and gender history of Egypt. In addition to several articles, he has published a well received monograph on masculinity titled Working Out Egypt. Affinity, Masculinity, and Subject Formation in Colonial Modernity, which came out in 2011 with Duke University Press and was co-published by the American University in Cairo Press. Welcome, Wilson, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World. And thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your captivating book today.
1: Thank you, Calvin. Thank you, Samyashri. It's a pleasure to be here with you.
0: So just to begin, can you start us off by saying a few words about yourself That is, where did you grow up, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, and any influential mentors you have?
1: Sure. Um, All of those things, obviously, also have something to do with this book. So I'll start from the beginning, if you'll allow me. Um, I was born in Kerala, in southwestern India, um, which is sort of the the beginning scene of um, For God or Empire. Um, and I lived there my first five years. Um, then our parents whisked us away to upstate New York um, as part of the great out migration from Kerala of, um, of women, actually, in large part, female-led out-migration. My mother was a nurse, and um, we... Ended up growing up in the U.S. Uh, between upstate New York for a year and um, Texas and Oklahoma um, for um, many years. Um, so finished high school in Oklahoma and um, did an undergraduate and master's degree uh, in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown. Um, there I had amazing. Teachers who um, introduced me to Arab history, to Islamic history, to um, the Middle East um, as a geopolitical formation, Um, Judith Tucker. The a renowned historian of um, social and gender history in the Middle East was my mentor, my main mentor, but um, I also gained a lot at Georgetown from the late Hisham Sharabi, um, who was technically an Arab studies professor, but in his um, later years, almost exclusively taught a sequence of um, European intellectual history that start in the 19th century as one seminar in the 20th century and then readings in postmodern European thought. Um, so, Sharabi was very, very crucial in um, helping me to see the importance of thinking seriously about European thought. Um, and along with Sharabi, Lalita Gopal, and... Um, A film studies professor um, introduced me to the world of postcolonial theory and postcolonial studies. Um, So that's where I would say my foundation lies is is, um, those five years at Georgetown. Um, But in between, I had a wonderful opportunity to study in Egypt. Um, in that famous American junior year abroad um, type program. And Martina Riker, a social historian who had trained under Peter Grant, um, but also went her own um, way as a scholar that was heavily influenced by deconstruction and subaltern studies. Um, she was also very crucial in helping me to think history outside um, particular grand narratives and boxes that, um, institutionalization, um, of the discipline sort of, you know, almost requires. Um, and then I went on to do a PhD at NYU where, um, um, there were many mentors. It was a most, um, open and amazing time to be there. Um as the Middle East and Islamic Studies program was, I think, only in its, or the joint history uh, Middle East Islamic Studies program was only in its second year. Um and so there was a lot of um excitement and um um it was a very dynamic place with Zachary Lockman, um the um one of the leading historians of um, of Egypt and Palestine was my advisor there, um, and Michael Gilson, an anthropologist um, who studies Islam, but has also um, veered towards Southeast Asia as Indian Ocean Studies in the last few years um, was in Informal sort of advisor, um, and along with them, Timothy Mitchell and Khalid Fahmi, Molly Nolan, Lisa Dugan. These were all um, exemplars of scholarly seriousness um, combined with intellectual generosity, which um, is sometimes hard to find in the academy. Together, um, so these were these were major. Um, these folks were major influences on me and. I imagine the development of my, of my research interests has a lot to do with, um, these brilliant people, um, who simultaneously guided me when I needed it and left me free to roam. Um, yeah, I think. Yeah, Thank you so much for that. And
0: just speaking as a PhD student, it is so important to, you know, at those fortuitous moments, meet advisors who who can provide you with the support you need, not just emotionally or logistically, but also intellectually for sure. Um, and I'm really curious because since your first book is working out Egypt, offending masculinity and subject formation, can you tell us how you became interested in the wider Indian ocean world? Sure.
1: Um, that in some ways has to do with the choice of PhD programs, which they should always, you know, tell you at your undergraduate level or your, your master's level. Um, I mean, I think I was told, but nonetheless, NYU was very attractive in those days. Um, and my proposal for um, the PhD program was, in fact, an Indian Ocean world um, proposal where I was interested in, and I wrote this from Syria, where um, I spent a year after doing my finishing my master's at Georgetown. um, And in Syria, for some reason, um, I was drawn to thinking about the Middle East um, as a bigger um, trans-regional phenomenon that you know, that included East Africa, included South Asia, um, and so my proposal was initially to work on connections between um, Oman and uh, and East Africa, which was you know in 1995 when there was oh boy I've just <laughs> really dated myself um, when, when there was you know not a lot written um, along those lines, but when I got to NYU. Um, it seemed that, um, and to the Middle East Islamic Studies program, that Egypt, which I had, you know, where I had studied as an undergraduate, and Judith Tucker, my um, MA and undergraduate mentor, was a specialist in Egypt. And she handed me off essentially to Zachary Lachman, who was also a specialist in Egypt. So there's a way in which Egypt, you know, is a is a magnet for uh Middle East PhD students and, um, and I absolutely adored Egypt. And so, so Indian Ocean kind of went, fell by the wayside, um, which had something to do also with the challenges of doing Indian Ocean, um, history in that particular time, um, in terms of experts and the and the paucity of, of expertise around Indian Ocean um, history at the time, but also the the language skills, which, you know, already sort of, um, you know, having worked on Arabic quite a bit by the time I got to NYU, because I did a year after Syria in Egypt um, before coming to NYU and, um, you know, the prospect of doing... Gujarati or some, or some other or Swahili. Other languages just seemed too much. And, um, and so the Indian Ocean was put on hold at the time, but I didn't know that when I wrote the dissertation um, that turned into this book, Working Out Egypt, that there were seeds of the Indian Ocean somehow planted in that book. Um, and it was a conceptual seed. And um, um, if you know that book, uh, it actually turns out being a book about sovereignty as well. Um, but the kind of sovereignty we're familiar with, right? Um, the you know, the the sort of anti-colonial nationalist movements and their quest for um, a sovereign state, right? Um, and in, independence um, from colonial rule. Um, and that book sort of thought through how... Though that movement in the case of Egypt had also global um, context for um, formulating ideal notions of, of a national Egyptian man, um, masculinity and so on. Um, but at the end of that book, there is a chapter um, that is a kind of almost response to myself for having um, locked myself within state sovereignty. Um, by writing um, inevitably a history of a nation state, um, you're locked into a particular conception of sovereignty. And so, that last chapter deals with the figure of the fitua, which, um, or in an Egyptian colloquial register, fitua, um, and this figure has both a kind of long classical. Um, conceptual elaboration in 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 Islamic history, going back to to medieval times, um, as an ideal um, model concept of masculinity that's tied to um, virtues like compassion, charity, generosity, um, and so on, but also um, bodily strength and um, the ability to protect. Um, and I noticed that this figure kept appearing in my sources, but as this um, these sources that were written by the the main subject of that book, the bourgeois right elite nationalist elite, um, the subject would appear as the other um, would be uh, pathologized in these bourgeois accounts um, as the figure of disruption, a figure. Um, that threatened the new modern social order based on law and um, a particular kind of national politics, um, that these effendis these, these um, middle class bourgeois claimants to the state, right, um, over and against colonial rulers as well as um, as old elites and the monarchy. Um, so the fetua was a strange counterpoint um, that threatened this new claim. And I was fascinated by, you know, um, that figure is more than a counterpoint, but in the book, I couldn't do that. Um, and so it nagged, um, on me after publishing the book that I also let the Fatua be essentially a victim of, of nationalism, of, um, of state sovereignty in the way that it sort of, you know, that this, uh, figure as a social actor embedded in particular communities um, does become. But the idea remains, right? Um, and that was interesting to me, that if you push Egyptians on the street, for example, um, to uh, think about fitua, which they immediately understand to be gangster or thug, um, as fitua, the classical um, um word, then they're like, oh yeah, it can also be, you know, a good thing. Um and that fascinated me, that 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 rupture, that scission, um, and and yet the you're right, the the remainder um that exists in the present. And so I thought that in the future I could actually think about this figure in relation to maybe other kinds of figures that represent um you know, these virtues that represent a kind of embodied power embodied sovereignty if you will and then that's where the figure of the sayyid the preacher the um the sufi came into the picture as well um but, um, but you know, that's the kind of intellectual itinerary. But you know, one could say that um, the Indian Ocean was just waiting to emerge, as one major scholar of Indian Ocean World Studies suggested to me when I started out that I was going back to my roots, which I took great offense to because, you know, I... Yeah, I Though an Indian chose to work on the Middle East, um, very self-consciously, and so this idea that that the Indian Ocean somehow and a Muslim figure would be my roots seemed offensive at the time. But then, of course, you know, as you learn, sometimes older and wiser people do know things you don't know. The beginning, um, it it would pan out that being part of a particular. Malayali Syrian Christian diaspora um, with its own institutionalized, you know, church forms that are transnational, that, um, that exist in the North American diocesan form, as well as in the Gulf and, and in other places, that this religious formation, which precedes in the, the Muslim formation in southwestern Malabar. Um, that there were affinities in the end between um, between that biography that was mine and the biography that I would go on to to write beautiful
0: so as someone who was previously located in Middle East studies and as a historian of the Middle East can you perhaps share with us what Middle East studies and more broadly area studies can gain from Indian Ocean World studies
1: I could try Um, it's a question a lot of people are have been thinking about um, lately. And um, I think, you know, so again, going back to that other question about how does somebody who wrote about Egypt, come to, to, to work on the Indian Ocean. Um, when I arrived at NYU, Timothy Mitchell was leading um, a multi-year um, research program, um, which I think was entitled Concealed Regions. So already in the mid-1990s. And there were scholars um who were trying to push the boundaries of um area studies right so emerging as a as a critique of area studies and um I was fascinated by this 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 um I thought it was a sort of clumsy, forgive me Tim, if you ever listen to this a clumsy formulation <laughs> concealed regions, but it it did offer um, some interesting possibilities um, where, you know, the the region itself, what is it, doesn't necessarily have to be region as we think of it as these geopolitical formations, even if, you know, some people think of them as natural formations or as historically constituted formations. They could be, you know, um, regions of thought, right, that we have um, that have been suppressed, that we haven't um, um, been able to see as legible because of histories of colonialism and so on, right? So this is where um, I think Tim Mitchell was coming from in in devising concealed regions. It wasn't necessarily to suggest that people do trans-regional right studies, um, like oceanic studies or so on. Um, it was um, a kind of more Foucauldian-inspired um, critique, um, whereby um, Certain objects are not even thought to, you know, be thought such that you would go about excavating them, right? Um, and so I think that, that one of the things that doing trans-regional, um, world history, um, choosing the Indian Ocean or the Atlantic world or um, the Mediterranean, as, as, as Brodel tried to teach us to think, um, it does allow us to, to break out um, in the specific context, right, of, um, of American-style area studies, which have very specific um, geopolitical Right, trajectories um, thinking the Indian Ocean, I believe helps us to to make legible the fact that the Middle East, as we have been studying it in North America um, and South Asia, are products of um, a very specific um, institutionalizations right of knowledge um, and that sometimes. The legibility of that becomes possible by by looking at um these in between spaces or um what does Sagata Bose call it like the trans regional arenas um, and and I think you know that is what i um i hope to do um with my book was both um take the Tim mitchell for sort of um um um, critique of concealed regions um, that are concealed precisely because of other histories, right, that become um, history, they become um, grand narratives, um, but also um, the the work that people were doing in connecting regions, right, um, especially early modernists. They were quite an inspiration to me. Um, when you know, you can work in a period before, right, um, um, many of these formations um, come into existence. And so you don't even have to deal with the process of um, of, of clearing a space for excavation, right? Um, and so um, scholars like Sanjay Subramaniam um, uh, are able to develop, right, um, a, a rubric of connected histories, um, and that is very suggestive for later periods, even as those later periods um, completely refashion the 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 very nature of connections, the the degree of connections, the kinds of connections, so on. Right, um, but um, yeah. yeah, I think that is all that I would have to say about what these established area studies by be able to gain from um, Indian Ocean World Studies is that by thinking about trans regions where the trans regions are not just geographical, right, um, um, units, but also um, um, constellations perhaps of ideas that um, we once thought were um, you know, banished from the present, whichever present we're looking at, the late 19th century, mid 20th century, what have you. Um, and the, the trans region helps us to think about or to see essentially how that may not have been the case, right? Right. So,
0: turning now to the book itself, can you tell us a bit more about how you came to write the Empire? How did the idea develop? what was the research process like and how was your writing experience?
1: Sure. The fun stuff. Um, Yeah. So in terms of, in terms of um, where this idea came from, um, it goes back to, to one of the earlier questions and, um, and it has to do with the roaming, right? So when I was working on the first book, um, near towards the end, and I had moved from Egyptian archives and libraries to um to the public record office as it was called then in at Kew Gardens and I was looking at the British version i guess of um of what the Egyptians were up to in the um first few decades of of the twentieth century and the British version, after having covered you know um, the the Arabic sources um quickly became boring to me, <laughs> police records and um uh, you know spying on boy Scouts movements and so on um uh, reading these reports um which I could also do super fast right much faster than than I could do with the Arabic sources um and so I found myself one day supremely bored at the archive and got up from my sources that i was looking at that day and wandered about the catalog section um the 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 you know the extant the hard copy catalogs and i uh, i pulled up one random one and um and i don't know if it magically opened up to so then the sufi is calling me no i I doubt it was that, but I don't know how this one opens. And the entry is for the Mopla Outlaw. And something about it struck me, right? Um, I didn't know exactly at that moment why Mopla um, resonated for me, Um, but it did. And so I pulled up those records and... Um they were foreign office like these huge tomes, um, too, actually, huge tomes of correspondence um, about this Mopla outlaw, it turns out it is um, Said Fudl, Um and the British are um, shooting letters and reports about this one Mopla um, that they have deemed an outlaw um, around the world, right, from... Uh, from London to Aden to to Jeddah to um to Simla to Delhi to, to Madras, um they are um you know um obsessed it seemed with this figure. Um but at that time Said Fuddle's rap sheet as I as I like to think about it, um was Incredibly exciting, um, different from reading British police reports about Boy Scouts, um, in some ways. And all I could do was write down a note, uh, you know, for future reference. That here's a fascinating figure. Uh, maybe you could do something with this later. And so, once the other book was was done, and I found myself in a Canadian research space where. Uh, you know, your first year on the job, you are instructed to um, apply for um, the various federal and provincial grants that one gets in Canada for research. Um, and so, the Canadian system, in a way, uh, uh, urged me to find a new research project very quickly. And I remembered those notes, and based on that, I I, I wrote up a research proposal that actually succeeded in getting me a provincial and a federal grant um, the social science humanities Research Council of Canada and the um, and the Quebec um, new researchers um, grant um, that gave me you know the resources I needed to to track down this um, history of Said Fuddle from Istanbul to uh, to Malabar, to um, Oman, to to the British archives in London, um, which would be a 10-year process, right? So the grants came in in um, 2007, maybe 2007, and I started to use the grants in 2008 to make um, initial trips to Istanbul, to, to Kerala um to suss out you know what other kinds of um sources uh, do we have to 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 write um whatever i didn't know at that time that it's, you know biography would be my in um to thinking about this um this figure thinking about um the histories that the figure um um was embedded in um but yeah but what are the sources for That, in which we find Said Fadl. And it quickly um, presented as, you know, um, overwhelming, right? There are tons of sources, um, including um, sources in Malayalam. Uh, I would quickly, the British sources have already alerted me to the fact that, right, they were significant as a family in um, in Northern Kerala, which, you know, the British conquered and turned into the district of Malabar. Um, And so there one finds hagiographies, you find a shrine. um, And I was reminded that uh, even though I was born in Kerala, I had forgotten Malayalam, um, the language of the state. So I had to, you know, I could speak it to some extent and understand it, um, but I had to study it. Um, as part of the the research process, um, and once you know, acquired sufficient reading knowledge, um, whole new avenues opened up. Right for um, for thinking um, both the historical life of Said Fuddle and the ideas of life that the community has, um, the ideas of life that um, the, that he would. Um, um, you know, he would have to to navigate to negotiate. um, And suddenly then the British archives, which go far beyond, right, those Foreign Office series that I initially found, but um, tons of records um, at the British Library, in the India Office records, um, um, that they don't tell us actually um what this life is um what they tell us is you know what a colonial project and then its empire um what it makes of this life right um and this is sort of what many of the well the few studies that exist that um the treat the history of Said Fadl, this is essentially what comes across, right? Um I think one significant exception would be Anna Bang's um work, where since she does read um the, the Sufi tracks um she can suss out that there is right this other dimension um to the life that the British inscribe as um the Mopla outlaw. Um but um Yeah, so I, you know, eventually found that the colonial archive is both rich um, with possibilities for talking about the um, certain historical contexts in which which we find Fuddle and which Fuddle found himself, um, but they're also tremendously limiting um, in both... um, a historical understanding of who Said Fadl was and in understanding um, the, the concept of life or the concepts of life that were at play um, in um, this, you know, in these histories that we find. Um, Yeah. And so, you know, along with all of the the archival digging and um, doing a bit of ethnography around the shrine, um, some interviews and so on, um, there was also the work of um, (laughs) having to um, become a graduate student again, in a sense. Right. Like um, figuring out secondary literatures. um, and I say literature's in plural, right, because as soon as you enter trans regional spaces, you discover that there are all these these fields and subfields um that um would be helpful in understanding what's going on so along with British imperial history which i hadn't really formally studied right to um islamic history um when does one stop with islamic history <laughs> you know only with the ottomans or back to the abbasid caliphates um so there was a lot of um secondary reading both in history um but also in islamic studies in um in anthropology in um some philosophy Um, And, you know, that is part of the reason why the book would go on to take another um, decade plus to actually come out.
0: So uh, so let's actually turn to the book right now and its chapters. And I believe Samashi here has a question.
2: Yeah. um, Hi, thank you. uh let's begin with your uh, broader theoretical structure. Um it's different from theories and concepts within the Islamic tradition that scholars would usually draw upon. Uh so how do you contribute to the scholarship of southern um, you know, like on South Asian Islam, the Indian Ocean world, and especially of Malabar, if one thinks of the recent work of Bastion Prange?
1: Sure. Um that's a lot there because um <laughs> Well, for one, I would say that, um, you know, it is different from what Islamic studies scholars work with um, or how they work. Right. But I don't think it's actually um, entirely different from theories and concepts within the Islamic tradition. So my right, part of the, the aim of the book is to try and... Um, to try and situate Fuddle in his own worlds. Um, and one of those worlds is certainly the mainstream Sunni um, Islamic tradition, right? Um, and so, so, yeah, so in that sense, it, it, there are concepts um, as well as theories in the book that are drawn out um, that you would find in the Islamic tradition, right? But my, of course, approach um, to them is, um, you know, somewhat cursory, somewhat shortened because of my interest in those other worlds as well that um, Side Fuddle inhabited and helped to shape, and and there, um, you know, we see then. Additional layers of both Islamic um, concepts, but also um, secular concepts of government and so on, that emerge. And so, I needed um, a framework in which I could try and capture, right, this multiplicity of um, both historical contexts that Said Fadil inhabited, but also life worlds that he. Um that he moved through, that he thought about, that he constructed, um and there I felt that um you know th- what's available in any one discipline um is 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 uh, not sufficient right to to do that work, um and then so um you know moving right, as he does and with him, um from Malabar, which is where he's born. But then again, um, the book sort of starts with his father. So moving from Tarim in Hadramaut, Yemen, um, to Malabar in the mid-18th century um, and then moving again um, as part of a um, a forced movement in a sense um, from Malabar to Arabia um, and then throughout Arabia and then from Arabia to um, to Egypt and to Istanbul. Um, you have just in terms of space, um, that's both Geographical, um, but also imperial spaces, um, once Islamic spaces, um, right? If we think in terms of um, how K.N. Chowdhury and others um, who have seen the you know, Fahad Bashara recently and, and many others who. Um, who see those geographies um, that make up the Indian Ocean world um, having a very distinctive Islamic character um, during particular periods um, to capture all of that, right? Because that's how I see this historical uh, figure's life, his his, um, career, um, his thought um, is occupying um a multiple um spaces that include the geographical ones, as I mentioned, um but also um conceptual spaces um wherein then space also becomes um exploded in some ways, right, to become multi dimensional as um you know even the British in their sources almost. You know, begrudgingly note that there is a way in which these figures, the Sayyid, um, the two Sayyids, um, Fadl and his father, Sayyid Alawi, occupy multi dimensions, right? I mean, they, um, they depicted it in terms of 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 <laughs> almost a mental derangement that they enter these states of hell right these um conditions of um of ecstasy of um I think the British used words like you know being beside oneself um how do we capture right the significance of that um beyond a kind of colonial curiosity but also um you know. What I think at least through the eighteen thirties um was a a certain begrudging respect, right? That that this um ability to command power, to command forces that um aren't always um legible, aren't always um you know, part of any rational kind of order, um which would change from the, I think, around the 1830s is what I say in my book, um, where they're less sort of curious and more about um, asserting, um, you know, a more um, universalist, absolutist form of sovereignty. But um, in that kind of hazy period up to around 1830, even the British are acknowledging that um, that the Sayyid figures, right, um, um, are able to. Um, exercise power in their jurisdictions um, without the use of armies or without the use of, um, right, obvious forms of of compulsion. Um, and so how do we capture that? Um, and then that's where I thought that, you know, the traditional conceptions of sovereignty have to be mapped, but they can't be um, the full story that I present in the book. And um, and so in addition to sovereignty, how we can think about life forms the, um, the theoretical structure, I think. Um, and here, the Sufi conception of um, the unity of life, um, which, you know, perhaps was just a convenient translation to try and stay within the the, the orbit of life, as I think, you know, Saeed Fadl and his followers uh, are sort of... Um, are, are are compelled to think life um in in new ways in the nineteenth century as as colonial powers, as state powers lay claim to life. Um, but you know, it's typically translated as the the unity of existence. Um but I didn't want, you know, to just to just as you say, right? To just um map an Islamic tradition, a Sufi tradition. I wanted to actually deploy it as um an analytical category. Um and so for that I I altered the translation um a little bit to unity of life, um, so okay. that we might be able to to capture those things that even the colonial um officials in Malabar are 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 sort of seeing, right? Um yeah, so in that way, I guess what I have to contribute to, to scholarship on South Asian Islam, the Indian Ocean world, Malabar, um, is a kind of connectivity or the offering of a sort of, um, you know, um, version of what connectivities kind of that aren't just about commerce or, um, right the. Growth of um, British imperial power, but connectivity that actually moves beyond um the um rational realms right connectivity that um that people experience when they go to the shrine at at mambaram for example right they're not connecting to um the indian state or to the old colonial state or um you know or to some idea of the caliphate right they're connecting to other Um, powers. And so to make that connectivity um, visible, even as it quickly becomes invisible, because it's, you know, it is the precise um, reason that it's hard to, 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 to theorize or to study is because it's not really there. Right. So um, anyway, that Uh, I hope would be a contribution. Yes.
2: Yeah, uh, going back to your life forms. So uh, what you offer us is really a very exciting and experimental way of using you know, life forms or biography to explore intellectual, political and community histories across the Indian Ocean. And you encourage us to look beyond the long shadow of the state, especially in laying out your central concept of the Sovereignty. As a method then, I was wondering, how do you engage with the indigenous archives of the Sufi and Sheri traditions in Malabar? because there were quite a few genres that were very important to the religious life of Muslims of the region. And the idea of self-sovereignty must have evolved in relationship to that life. So how was that life, you know, I mean, how was it relationship like?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question, a very a tough one, because in many ways, in thinking connectivity beyond the the traditional um, understandings that we have of the way that we make connections in history, one of the things that um, becomes um, sacrificed perhaps (laughs) at the altar of this other irrational or non-rational form of connection is the local, right? Um, And it is, I guess, one of the struggles that anybody who's... um, trying to chart the biography of someone whose life was transregional in that multiple sense that I, I, I indicated at the beginning. So you're going to be torn between forces of localization and um, forces that, yeah. for lack of a better word, might call global um, forces. And in the end, I think the local was significantly compromised or... or um, Sacrificed in the in this book, um, I try to come back to it right um, with this idea of returns and um, by trying partly to um, to make Mamburam and the Mamburam Makam visible, um, but there is of course so much more right as you rightly note in the question um, of uh, um, what's going on in the development of a of a Malabari or South Indian Islam um, beyond um Syed sovereignty and that Say sovereignty wouldn't naturally have to negotiate um those other developments such as the you know the urban um located ulama right for example um who um were quite often amenable to you know the change in administration, and um, at least you know they become that way. In you know, there are passages in my book that sort of gesture towards um, how this history is going to unfold, right? And that is often what ends up being the focus of most of the the Malabar um, focused scholarship. Is is this this development, right? Um, that almost always seems to be. Um, building towards the great um, 1921 Malabar Rebellion, um, because then one can start talking about the Khilafat movement and its relationship to Gandhi and to um, the Indian right nationalist movement and so on. Um, and that way, then the nation state reasserts itself. And I <clears throat> perhaps, you know, in some ways, strategically leave Malabar um, to avoid that, right? Um, and sort of like when I started out, you have um, some scholars um, who are located in in different fields who would try to make sense of what I'm doing in relationship to their field, right? But but what they're making sense of this um, transregional history. Um, it does is it, 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 it um, domesticates, right, this figure um, in um, both senses of the word. <laughs> Actually, um, they, they, they tend to sort of pull Said Fadal back to a South Asian space, right? Um, so one of my initial presentations of the work, was met with um, the always already Indian question, um, which you might appreciate, is, um, you know, what about Bengal? And and my response to this is, what about Bengal? (laughs) There is nothing about Bengal here. Um, I mean, there is and there isn't, right? Like, So this is perhaps like what's behind this question is that um, there is a history of South Asian Islam and it has... its, its, its particular trajectories that are often located in the northern um, parts of India. Um, and I think maybe that's where the, the, the Malabar tradition also, right, when you start to, to develop um, the debates locally in Malabar, again, that, that, that process, right, that is implied in development um is is crucial. you'll start to deal with debates that eventually you know and very quickly by the end of the nineteenth century will have linkages to um uh, reformist movements um not only in northern parts of India right, but Southeast Asia as well um and but it will be the the national framework um that becomes um, in some ways all determining. Um, and there are plenty of scholars who have you know done that kind of that kind of work um locally my project began with an interview with with m Gangadran, who who's written a couple of books um you know translated into english as well um about um the maplas they sort of right, the Muslims of this Malabar region. Um, and and in you know his work, um KK Muhammad Abdul Satar, um a, a locally based historian um, and um, professor in, in Northern Kerala, Yasser Arafat, Mahmoud Kuria, um there's a way in which you know the local um is um, is far better captured right in in those works. Um, And that's precisely because they think about the debates that emerge um, in Kerala by the end of the 19th century that will be part of the larger intellectual background for the Malabar Rebellion and how you understand the Malabar Rebellion and so on, Um, which is all important, but it's just not work that I did. So answering the question um, is also quite, quite difficult. I mean, at one point the call of Malabar was there, right? Um, especially as as I began to see what the richness, you know, what richness there was in the debates that that develop around shrine practices, right? As you have um the the great, you know, second round, if you will, of migrations to the Gulf of labor migrations and the returns to Kerala, where Kerala is raised on the exports perhaps the most uh, percentage wise of laborers from India to the gulf um you have you know, new forms of islam returning and you know, in mamburam itself across from um from the makam um will be built um a grandiose um sort of congregational mosque um that shows Right. The the power of that migration, the wealth that comes back um, with um, the migrants and also the ideas. Um, and so the there was a desire to to map out uh, the debates more carefully um, and bring them you know, into the present because the sources are there. And it's incredibly fascinating where you have, for example, um. um TV programs that um, offer a stage essentially um, for Muslims in Malabar of differing um, opinions um Sufi Sunni um, debates around um, questions right of theology uh or about the, the you know questions of, of 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 orthodoxy of visiting of whether or not visiting um Sayyid shrine is um, um is shirk or not right is is yeah. a form of sort of polytheistic practice um but i i Ultimately, could not do all of that right. Um, right, especially as I follow Said Fadl as he leaves Malabar, as he's exiled from there in 1852. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, we can only do so much in a book, right?
1: Right.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, this actually brings me to the first chapter uh, where you discuss the encounter of the English East India Company with the Saeeds of the Alavis of the Order. In the early 19th century, I was thinking, and it might just go back to, you know, what we have been discussing so far, is that in what ways do you depart and defer from the earlier accounts from, say, the 1980s, especially of Kane Panikas, that also recognize the alternative authority that these Saeeds had long exercised in the region?
1: Yeah, um, I think, you know, Panikas Against Lord and State was one of the first books I read when I was Preparing the PhD application, so back in 1995, um, before this, you know, this book project actually um, took shape, and um, I guess that the departure is in the fact um, that I find in those histories uh, a teleology that I um you know, couldn't actually follow in um charting this life of Saifatl because he doesn't ever get to return to India. Um the British made sure of that, right? That he nor his descendants would be able to return to India. Um so in that way, um the biography is very useful for disrupting um the teleological narrations that um we typically find in um um i don't want to say all of the studies but in many most of the studies um that treat religious um formations um and you also find a very secularist kind of um bent in in those studies where they might acknowledge the significance of of um these sayyids and ulama and um you know how they're important to these communities um but there's also this sense that you know um reform is is inevitable reform is going to come um and a certain rationalization of that religious order um will happen and there yeah you know, that's important when one is thinking anti-colonialism in particular kind of register. Um, but it doesn't map on to the life that I was um, mapping, right? So, um, so I think that's, that's where the departure
2: uh, yeah. um, comes Uh In the second chapter, uh, you talk about the most interesting and late document from the pre-1857 period. Um, if you could tell us more about it, how does it bring together the themes of religion and sovereignty? Explore in the book and the virtues it offers about a good government in Islam, and also what implications it has for the Indian world.
1: Sure, um, and this uh, actually this this text, al Amara, the um, preparedness of princes, um, tells us a lot about the teleological that I was. Um, <laughs> that I was referencing earlier. Um, so it's a text um, whose full title is <laughs> The Preparedness of Princes and Governors for the Affronts of Infidels and Idolaters. Um, and it's a text that actually is produced um, outside India um, and will end up um, being smuggled back into India, so so the story is that um, in the 1830s, when there were a series of uprisings against um, um, landlords and against the British, um, and, which were seen as Islamic uprisings, Muslim uprisings, um, you hear of the circulation of of Sayyid Ali's fatwas, um, his religious opinion. Um, that's offered to um, to people seeking guidance, people asking questions about, you know, how do we endure this calamity of um, colonial occupation? Um, what is right? What is just in this situation? And so you have a series of fatwas that appear and um, the colonial officials you know, will acknowledge that they exist and that they circulate in the region. Um, And they come to be grouped under within you know under the title of of asayf al batar the sharpest sword and the fatwas are you know typically regarded as jihadi fatwas right they're um, they're calls to the lesser jihad to an armed um, resistance to an armed struggle against um, those who would undermine um, Muslim life, Muslim sovereignty. Um, but what happens is that the British essentially confiscate um, the extant copies, and um, they did, were apparently out of circulation by 1851 or so. Um, and in 1852, Sa'id Fadl is is exiled, expelled from from India. Um, And he has the fatwas incorporated into this this larger text, The Preparedness of Princes. Um, And when you read that text together, the fatwas, as well as the advice for princes, which goes back to an old genre, right? The mirror of Prince's literature, um, but has its own distinctive markers of, um, or Alawi markers um, that make it a Sufi text as well, right? So it's not um, it's not exactly the same as, as, as what would one would find in the medieval genre. Um, and so you have the lesser jihad, it is incorporated into this text, but when you read the rest of the fatwas, which often people don't <laughs> read, and um, you know that are not about armed struggle, about um, killing infidels, resisting right their encroachment and so on, um, which are actually about how to live with the other, all right? Um, because the fatwas are a whole variety. They're not. And so there you have questions of authorship, like, you know, where were these fatwas produced? I think, um, you know, were they produced in Yemen? And I think it's a compilation, right? which is exactly the word that's used um, in the text, right? It doesn't talk about who wrote it as much as um, the, that it's a compilation of fatwas that have emerged over time and in different kinds of contexts. Some contexts, like in Malabar, it's where you have Muslims who are in a minority, right? Um, How do you live in that kind of context? Um, You know, how you can't live seeing everybody as an enemy, right? Um, Especially when you are not the, um, you know, you are not the state or you don't control the state and so on. Um, So this, Larger text read with these other fatwas point us to um, exactly a relationship of religion and sovereignty, as you as you suggest in your in your in your in your question that tells us something about good government in Islam, where it's not about the princes and the governors in the end, right? They're important, like for Muslims to live well in Islamic societies where you know, the princes, the sultans and so on are Muslim. Um, it would be good to have them be good governors and being good governors and ministers and and sultans um, requires X, Y, and Z. So they, these you know these are detailed and they are repetitions of what you'll find in, in other Islamic texts. But um, but what's interesting is that the it, the Alawi tradition when it creeps into the text right. Um, a text which actually has prayers to the Ottoman Sultan, right? So it's printed in Cairo in 1857 or 58. Um, and then it, it, you know, then it makes its way back to to Malabar. And we're not exactly sure how um, my own, you know, my own um, acquisition of this text goes you know, it was a circuitous route to a private um, holding um, of a man who copied um, the copy that was kept in a mosque um, in a remote sort of part of Malabar. Um, it's how I got a hold of of the text myself. Um, But you see that there's a critique of government that is there to repress people to Control people and simply that right and not to help elevate people so government as Foucault sort of traces out right that conducts souls to um, to to God in this case right um and in that way, I think um, the text is a very important one for that 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 period, but also for thinking more broadly about Islamic conceptions of of, of government or governmentality, discipline, um, um, politics. Um, so it has implications for um, you know, other parts of the Indian Ocean world, I think, um, because you have Alois who will spread around the um, the Indian Ocean world and their engagements with um, a textual corpus that Ng Sing Ho so beautifully um narrates in, in um, his book, The Graves of Tarim, um, you know, alerts us to the fact, right, that there is, um, there is a wide circulation of particular, um, um, of a canon of sorts, and it is a different sort of canon in the Indian Ocean world, I think, is very important in constituting that canon.
2: Very, very exciting um yeah i mean i was I was fascinated by how authorship works in these fatwas because Malabar had a long tradition of seeking legal opinions from Shafi authorities abroad, so it took makes total sense that these fatwas were probably more of a compilation than having you know originated from just one author um The chapter three moves very briskly around the Indian Ocean, and it's a great read. Um, you refer to two very significant events in the Arab world, the rebellion of 1855 and the 1858, in which Fadal was involved in all likelihood. So what had actually happened and what was the alleged role that Fadal played in these, which had, you know, subsequent consequences?
1: yeah. So this the answer, the quick answer, I realize my answers have been going on. The quick answer for to that, right, is that if I had delved into the events themselves of 1855 and 58, um, it would be like you know, delving into the Malabari local debates um and it would take me away from the larger narrative of, of life that I was trying to map. But very quickly. Um, in 1855, there's a rebellion among Arabs of Mecca um, against Ottoman. The Ottoman attempts to suppress the slave trade, um, and you know, this one could chalk up to a series of rebellions that um, were ongoing since the late 18th century. Um, in you know, rebellions that, um, in a sense, index um, how. The Sultan Caliph um, in Istanbul um, is not um, his authority is not being um, regarded anymore as um, the same as that of a Caliph, right? Sure, there's a Sultan in Istanbul, but um, but you know the the caliphal qualities are not so great, which is why the um, Islamic world is in danger, right? Um, And by 1855, uh, the danger is clear and present, right? The Europeans are essentially able to impose terms um, to tell the Ottomans that X, Y, and Z reforms must take place. And in this case, the reforms um, to suppress the slave trade, which the Ottomans will try to to actually um, to do, right? So in 1855, there's a rebellion. It's not clear if Fuddle was involved, but the British um, are keeping tabs on him and are <laughs> suggesting that he might have been. And then the 1858 um, incident was a massacre in Jeddah, um, where, um, where Europeans and um, their Christian protégés um, were killed. Um, and the story is, you know, um, that that history is told in interesting ways um, by other scholars like Oxenwald. Um, and the recent books that just came out this year um, I think probably um, would have to treat those events, the book by Michael Christopher Lowe um, on the Hejaz and Ulrike Freitag on, on Jeddah um, as connected spaces, right, that have these overlapping um, trans-regional um, Um, relationships that involve the Ottoman Empire, that involves um, the British, that involves um, Islamic reform movements, and so on. Um, So I don't delve into those events myself. But um, what I use them for is to show how the British surveillance um, of Said Fadl is weak Actually, in the 1850s after they expel him from India but would exponentially grow once we move into the 1870s. Um, and so for me, those events and, the, and then later ones when they're able to better track him are actually um, aimed at sort of showing how State sovereignty, modern state sovereignty is in large part predicated on better surveillance, right? Better like capacity for surveillance and policing.
2: Right, indeed. Yeah. Um, you know, like in the rest of the chapter, you then offer a very close reading of an Ottoman document, which the wrote after 1879, after he was expelled. So what say political philosophy does it offer that is different from what Fadl was writing earlier in the uddat about forms of good governance?
1: Yeah, um that's an excellent question because this is the moment when um we can see very clearly that he has undergone um a series of of intellectual shifts, right? Um You have the son of um, a revered, um, saintly figure um, who will leave India with that patrimony, with that heritage. um, And with the knowledge that his father, that his burial site has become a shrine. um, And so continuing an Aaliyah tradition in the Indian Ocean world. where um, important figures of the tradition, um, they will be shown this reverence and this respect in their, um and their burial sites become maqams or shrines. Um, and so the Telomara navigates, you know, this um, tradition, the importance of the government of souls um, where the the main end, um, is not a worldly end, right? Is not, so it doesn't have, um, a politics. So life is not about politics. Um, but as we, Move through these periods in the 1850s, 1860s, where he witnesses himself the declining power of the Ottoman state, which isn't just any state, right? It's sort of the last, one of the last remaining sovereign Muslim states. whose Sultan also um, has a claim to the caliphate, right? Of being a Sultan Caliph, um, and to, to witness the beaconing of the state um, draws him into um, politics, into thinking life in political terms. And that is a major shift in how he um, thinks his own Sufi tradition and thinks Islamic concepts um, because geopolitics suddenly start to... And become more detailed in um, um, in these reports, which are not, you know, any longer Sufi treatises or 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 chronicles or what have you or biographies. um, They're very literally reports that you would find a government agent of the Ottoman Empire um, writing, and and he will through these reports, I imagine, acquire ministerial status. Um, And so, in them, you get. You know accounts of the land and it's like um productive um potential the commercial possibilities uh you get accounts of um of arabs which actually harken back to earlier um, um historical traditions within um within islam of of thinking arab meaning very specifically a nomadic tribal the Bedou groups right um and and they're they're very clearly presented as um as his other right and the other clearly of um of settled city folks um and um they're sort of savage, literally savage right, which is the the word that appears um form of life um Requires, needs, necessitates the guidance of a sayyid, um, the existence of a um, of a strong Muslim state, um, and so these terms of governmentality that um, that emerge are startling, right? <laughs> to, to read um, after you pass through um the the odd omrav. And then as you pass beyond the government reports to the latter stage of his life, to the Sufi treatises, um, where um this experiment with government, which fails right in Zofar, where he's kicked out, um, expelled, you know, partly because of an El Nino event um that causes massive drought and famine, um, that he's you know, probably mismanaged, um, but uh, also because of of, of um, British and Omani um, maneuvering to um, to secure Omani sovereignty over Zofar. Um But that, coupled with essentially home um, um, house arrest in Istanbul, where you know, when that becomes clear to him by the end of the eighteen eighties. That the Sultan has no intention of letting him um, roam free and Mm. potentially create diplomatic incidents between the Ottomans and the British. Mm. Um, He turns to the Sufi um, tradition that he's an heir to um, and problematizes, I would argue, if we were to radically recontextualize those Sufi texts, them texts, then they become um, a problematization of what he himself had participated in just um um you know, uh, a few years earlier um of trying to conceive sovereignty um through the biopoliticization of life
2: right very rich indeed um speaking of sufi traditions i think kelvin has more questions on that okay
0: yeah i i think that your work is really meaningful and significant also in a way it treats the Sufi mystical treatises methodologically. And I think that historians in general stand to benefit from really your approach in reading uh, this set of texts as political treatises and as embedding within themselves a set of politics, a set of ethics. Um, Just to zoom out a little bit, I have a more broader question about how the genre of Sufi mystical treatises has been read by scholars of religion or anthropologists. And in what ways, are they valuable to the historian um, in your case? So what is the ethical and political subject that is often assumed by scholars um, who are operating within a secular framework? And in what ways do these Sufi mystical treatises undermine that vision of the coherent, autonomous subject?
1: Sure. Um, very good questions. Um, I can't elaborate, obviously all the different ways they may be read in other disciplines. Um, But my feeling is that they're certainly given more weight in religious studies and anthropology um, than in history. Um, And even in sort of um, theoretical studies of of law, Um, for example, um, in Samara Esmer's brilliant um, history of modern law in Egypt, um um, where as a counterpoint to this um kind of legal colonization of the concept of the human, um she offers a reading of an Egyptian Sufi, um uh, I think Atar in the early 20th century. Um and there's a lot of resonances there um with um Said Fadl but also departures, um, as a, um, Sufi belonging to a, um, a, a Sayyid tradition, right, who claims descent from the Prophet, um, there is a kind of, um, um, privilege given to the Ahl al bait to the Prophet's household and his, um, you know, his closest companions and so on to the Salaf, um. That is is somewhat different, but uh, also in that he dies, Fadl dies in 1900, and Attar goes on to read Darwin and so on. So there are 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 differences. Yet I think if we read them together, and we read lots of these different um, Sufis together, um, and, and we read them in ways that literary critics sort of teach us to read. Um, texts that repeat in new contexts, that that repetition is different from a reproduction of the same, right? um, Then we might sort of actually um, arrive at um, um, meaningful conclusions about particular historical moments. Um, And we might find that, right, um, that repetition and the difference um, in interesting sorts of locations, right? It could just be in the manner in which the text was disseminated, it could be in marginal notes, right? So in some of in some of Sayyid Fadil's last texts, you see marginal notes that attempt to intervene in the Sufi tradition. So in this case, it's the state that intervenes or the publisher um, that tries to to sort of rein in the mystical flights um, by reference to the Ottomans. Um, or you can find them in the reframings that take place, right? So the way in which Said Fadl reframes um, the fatwas or the mirror of princes genre um, in Utlomara, um it could be in prefaces that are, um, that are offered by um, a printing house um, or... Um, you know, the biography of the particular interlocutor in this case, right, Um, Fuddle's movement through time as a historical historical figure who simultaneously engages a, um, what is a trans-historical, but also anti-historical tradition, right, Um, that when we then arrive at this textual production, or repetition, if you will, um, at the end of the 19th century. It's not just um, plagiarism. There's a lot of copying of previous scholars and so on. And people have studied, you know, how we should think about um, that form of repetition um, in Islamic studies in particular. Um, But I think that for historians, particularly modern historians, um, these are some of the ways that um we might find um these Sufi texts helpful for our projects, if it's you know, projects to think about um empire or to think about sovereignty, um, wherein we don't end up reproducing those terms of sovereignty. Um, or we might actually problematize them, if not displace them, right? Um that, that is a really interesting provocation that I think leads us
0: nicely to your next chapter, Uncertain Returns. So, here I want to invite you to tell us a bit more about Maparam. How and why was it historically significant? And how did this significance shift over time? And I'm thinking especially of the implications of colonial and post colonial Mapala attempts to bring back the Alawi family along with their own efforts to return. How does this impact how we think about archives, including cyber archives, d- digital archives, and non-traditional archives?
1: Yes. Um, <clears throat> the kind of rogue chapter in the book. Um, um, so good questions. I, uh, I guess the first about the historical significance um, of Mamburam and the shifts over time. I I sort of alluded to that um, previously. um, And in the book, I, I sort of suggest... Now that it is Saeed Alawi and um, the legacy of Saeed Fadl, that that makes Mamburam, right? Um, Otherwise, it's a sleepy hamlet in the middle of, you know, (laughs) a nowhere in the middle of nowhere kind of um, location. But yet it's incredibly um, globally connected, right? Um, And um, it was so in the time of... um, of Said inside and Said Fadl, um, wherein you have um, displacements that are experienced throughout um, South Asia, throughout um, other regions of the world in, in the latter parts of the, the 18th century that lead to various kinds of movements in those places, right, whether it's constitutionalisms in um the Western Hemisphere or um various forms of Islamic uh, revolt in um, um in Africa and in um in in Asia, um is not despite its sleepiness, despite its 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 somewhat um, remoteness from the port cities and so on. It's not disconnected, right? And part of this is made very clear in the the British, um, reports about, um, the, um, um, what is it called? The, uh, the, um, the point from which rebellion emanates, right? Um, and they identified it as, um, Mamburam, as the place where you find the Sayyids. Um, and the reason is because, you know, though they could never prove that Sayyid Ali and fuddle Fuddle actively incited or engaged, because if they could, then they would have more easily been able to arrest them. Um, but what they did have were circumstantial evidence of people traveling from different parts um, of Kerala to seek the blessings of these Sayyids in this, like, removed hamlet in Maumburum. Um And... They were seeking blessings in order to um, carry out attacks on um, the British, right? Um, and the way that the British would respond to this after they exile exiled the Sayyid um, is to lock it down, right? So again, acknowledging the importance of this space, um, is to lock down the shrine so that it sort of disappears from um, from memory from people's um everyday practices or 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 their um pilgrimages or their you know occasional practices um, but it doesn't go away and eventually the shrine is reopened. Um, when things seem more stable by the end of the 19th century, um, and the shrine will, you know, be rebuilt, and, um, and you see a kind of um, return to significance of the shrine in the um, in the later 20th century. So as I started my fieldwork there, um, it still had a relatively sleepy air to it, but you could see that there was a relatively new Quran school um, next to the shrine. Um, and then the next time I went, there was the, um, the iron and, you know, the rebar coming out of the ground, um, for a massive overpass that was going to be as disastrous overpass as I could tell. Like, it was going to just drop people down, uh, with their cars, literally next to the shrine. Um, that didn't seem like a very clever idea, but, um, the shrine complex was, Growing into a, a complex, right, with um, a set shopping or a, a sort of area with stalls for um, you know selling ritualistic kinds of items, hagiographies, um, you know textbooks for preparing for your um, for your college entrance exams, various kinds of um, book stalls as well. So it actually has seen a a revival um, in in both the built environment um, and the um, the numbers of pilgrims who, or the people who make ziyara to the to to the shrine. Um, And in turn, of course, um, it becomes wrapped up again in um, in in globally salient um, developments such as um, you know a Salafi. Movement that is not the way that Saifuddin fabul had understood the Salaf, um a, a, a different understanding of um of what um the the early Muslims um, meant for islam to be. they actually find themselves at at loggerheads um and um so in that way Mamburam remains um um significant to um To the 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 debates that are ongoing, both in Malabar and the rest of India, um, and um, in in many other places around the world, about the the true nature of Islam, um, the the relationship of religion to politics, to um, to intermediaries, whether there can be intermediaries between man and God, and so on. Right. So so this little place that doesn't seem Um, under, you know, using certain criteria to be significant in any way, um, has significance. Beautiful. So before
0: we move on to our last traditional question, can you please read a paragraph from the
1: book for our listeners? Oh, sure. Um, I suppose maybe closing this out with the closing of the book um, would be the best Thing to read. Um, Okay, so finally, in order to release our story from the grip of sovereignty's mediations, we look to for the unity of life. A leap of faith was necessary for me and for those who sought similar glimpses, an experience of solidarity, if that is what it is, that is impossible to represent. Traces of that leap are what we have tracked through histories of diasporic movement, colonization, identity formation, mystical flights, rebellion, reforms, reaction, and returns. Thus, through a long multidimensional play of sovereignty and life, an obscure site in Zofar, shrouded in centuries-old Indian Ocean myth and legend, was tied to another obscure site in Malabar, vested with stories of Mapla Muslim community formation that was in turn tied to a grave in an imperial cemetery in Istanbul. And as my final act of tracing this relationship within a global Indian Ocean history has revealed, the play continues.
0: Beautiful. Well, Wilson, we've taken up a lot of your time. So moving on to our last traditional question, what are you working on now? Can you tell us a bit about your current and future projects?
1: Oh, thank you. Well, I think I have gone on far longer than I should have. Um, So I'll be very brief. I spent the summer working on an article that um, that was just submitted on Fuddle's anti-colonialism and um, Sufi thought or Sufi revival um, and how we might use that to think about critical theory, for expanding the horizons of critical theory. Um, and um, other than that, which was exhausting to do, um, I haven't given much thought to to what, are, what should come next. Um, I think after the Indian Ocean rounds that I've made, I'm, I'm probably ready to return to the Arab world. Um, especially to its non-capital sites um, after many years um, in Cairo and having lived in Damascus. Um, I fell in love with this little place called Salalah in Oman, um, but also um, with the Fayum oasis in Egypt. So if someone can point me to a way to locate those two in a historical frame, I'll be, I'll be set um, or maybe they can be books three and four. Um, but yes, there is no firm plan for the future at the moment.
0: All right. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode in which we explored Fogodo Empire by Professor Wilson Jacob, published by Stanford University Press in 2019. You can find a book on Amazon and other outlets. We are your hosts, Kelvin Ng and Somishi Ghosh. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.